Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a French theme. I have a quick and dirty tip for you about whether you should capitalize the word French in French fries. I have a conversation with our newest podcast host, Kara Rhoda, of The Clever Cookster, about cooking words that come from French. And finally, I'll have a tidbit about the word guillotine, which comes from a surprising French source. And now about those French fries. Although we often capitalize a country or city name when it's part of a food name, that's not always the case, and it's typically not the case with French fries. Most sources say to keep it lowercase. The reasoning given by the AP Stabbook writers is that French describes the style of cut and doesn't refer directly to the country. The Chicago Manual of Style also recommends keeping French lowercase because French isn't being used literally to refer to the country. They give Swiss cheese as another example. It's lowercase because it's not actually made in Switzerland. It's named after a cheese called Emmental, which it resembles, and which is made in Switzerland. And that's capitalized because the name does relate directly to the Emmental region where it originated. On the other hand, though, four out of five examples of the phrase French fries in the Oxford English Dictionary have the word French capitalized, and the entry in the Merriam-Webster online dictionary has French fry lowercase, but notes that French is often capitalized. Ultimately, it's a style choice, but I recommend keeping the French lowercase in French fry. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Next, my guest Kara Rhoda from The Clever Cookster is going to tell us about some interesting cooking words that came from French. If you listened to the show last week, you'll remember that I talked about William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion, that in 1066, William, who spoke a version of French, conquered the English army, took over England, installed his own government, and quickly began building castles. French became the official language of England, and the poor people, they continued to speak English, but the upper class and the aspiring social climbers, they spoke French. And it was during that time that a lot of French words entered the English language, especially words related to upper class life, such as words about government and cooking. Now, when my husband heard that, that cooking was part of upper class life, he was confused. He asked me, what, didn't the poor people cook? Which was a good point. But here's how the language experts describe it. They say that the animals in the fields who were being tended by the lower class, they kept their Anglo-Saxon names, such as cow, pig, and deer. But once they were cooked and on the tables of the nobility who spoke French, they took their French names, beef, pork, and venison. So the serfs, they talked about raising cows, and the French noblemen, they talked about eating beef. And I think this is a good time to bring in Karen Rhoda. She is the host of our newest Quick and Dirty Tips podcast, The Clever Cookster. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you bet. We're excited to have you as part of the network. So before we talk about French cooking words, give us a quick rundown of The Clever Cookster. What are you talking about every week? Absolutely. So each week we're sharing quick and dirty tips from the kitchens of the world's best cooks. We interview emerging and established chefs and cookbook authors, as well as getting exclusive insights from bakers, farmers, grocers, and more. That sounds great. I mean, everyone loves to cook and eat and learn how to do it better. So that sounds wonderful. Um, so l let's get back to the words. So the French noblemen, they talked about eating beef. And words entering a language, it takes some time. So the Oxford English Dictionary says that beef became an English word around 1250. So, you know, the Norman invasion was in 1066. 
text and these French words became firmly established maybe a couple hundred years later. And when I was looking that up, when I was looking at beef, it jumped out at me that the old French pronunciation was boeuf, spelled B-O-E-F. And I remembered a scene from the movie Julie and Julia about boeuf bourguignon. So why don't you tell us a little bit about boeuf bourguignon, if I'm even saying that right? Absolutely. Um, I, it's funny. I feel like I hear a lot of people pronounce it beef bourguignon, which is sort of a mashup of the English and French pronunciation, but it is heavily featured in Julie and Julia. Um, the name actually refers to its origins in Burgundy. The recipe that I love to use is an Anthony Bourdain version. So you can use Burgundy wine as per the title, or you can sub in another comparable variety. When you're using cooking wine, you really don't need it to be something that's fantastic enough that you would serve it as a, at a dinner party. Um, it really just needs to kind of get the job done, giving the sauce a lot of depth and flavor from the alcohol content in the wine. So the Anthony Bourdain recipe that I love is a great way to use cheaper, tougher cuts of beef because the longer cooking time breaks them down into really fork tender mouthfuls. Oh, that's great. So you shouldn't waste your money on expensive wine and or expensive meat. Oh, or expensive meat. So it sounds like a fancy recipe, but it's actually sort of a cheap isn't the right word, but clever. It's a clever cookster kind of meal. <laughs> you it's, can save it's money. a shortcut to having a better, better meal than the receipt from the grocery store seems like it would be. Oh, that's great. So um, other words that came into English from French around the same time as beef are bacon. Again, a uh, word for the cooked food that comes from a pig. Pig is the Anglo-Saxon word. And that came into English from Old French around the 1300s. Savor, I thought this was interesting, from Old French in the 1200s or 1300s. And it made me think, I guess the nobles, they probably had more time to savor their food than the commoners who were working in the fields raising the cows and pigs. And another interesting one is liquor. So that comes from Old French in the early 1200s. So mead, wine, and ale are all of Germanic origin. But liquor, like the kind you'd use to make beef bourguignon, is, that liquor is from the French. And one more from those early days, Kara, that you had mentioned to me is salad. So that comes from the old French in the late 1300s. And I was, this was interesting to me because lettuce is also from the old French. And I couldn't find an Anglo-Saxon word you'd use for salad. Um, lettuce and romaine, those are both French too. So if any of the listeners, if you know of an Anglo-Saxon word, word that would relate to salad, please leave a comment at quickanddirtytips.com on this article because I'm really curious. Usually, you know, it would be the serfs who grew the lettuce, but that's not how it's working for lettuce and salad. So Kara, do you have a favorite salad recipe you want to tell us about? I do. Um, staying with the French theme, Niçois salad is one of my favorites and it's named again after the region in France, um, Nice. But it's a combination of tuna, potatoes, eggs, green beans, and anchovies, and usually on a bed of lettuce. Sometimes there's capers. Um, it's so flavorful and filling, and it's the perfect full meal salad. So basically when I want to eat a salad but feel like I'm eating an incredibly substantial amount of food, that's what I go for. And I have another favorite recipe for that that I'll share. That's fascinating. Looking at the name of that, I never would have made the connection that it comes from the city of Nice. But now that you've said it, of course, it makes sense. That's right. 
Yeah. So when, um, when I was looking up the origin of salad, I've always wondered why people use the phrase salad days to talk about their youth. That never made any sense to me. And so I looked it up while I was looking up salad. And the Oxford English Dictionary says the first use was from Shakespeare. So it's one of those phrases that Shakespeare coined. We talked about that a while ago. And he, it was in the play Antony and Cleopatra in 1623. And the relevant line is my salad days when I was green in judgment and cold cold in blood. So in your youth, you were cold and green like a salad. <laughs> That's so interesting. So let's, let's here's some other cooking words that you thought of that came from French. One that jumped to your mind was restaurant, right? Yes. I love this one because it's such a, when you hear the origin, it, it sounds so right. It makes so much sense. So the word restaurant comes from the French verb uh, restaurant or however that's actually pronounced, meaning to restore or revive. So etymologically, a restaurant is a place where visitors can relax, be well-fed, feel taken care of, and be restored and revived before going back out into the world. And I think when you have a really good restaurant experience, it should still feel that way. It does. Oh, that makes so much sense. And again, I never would have made the connection. When, when I'm tired, I, I, some, I, I go out to eat a lot and say, I just want someone to cook for me, bring me the food and do the dishes. I don't want to do that myself. <laughs> and the final word that you brought up that you thought was interesting from French and that I think is interesting too is omelette. So it came into English in the early 1600s, but it was a mistake. So experts think omelette formed by a process we've talked about before called metathesis or rebracketing. So for example, the word apron in English used to be napron with an N, but because people misheard a napron as an apron, the official word became apron with an A and the basically the bracket, the space between the words moved. And they think the same thing happened with omelet. There are two French words that sound similar, uh, la lamella and amelel, and I probably said those wrong, but um, people think that rebracketing of those French words actually gave us omelet in the 1600s. So it's an example of French rebracketing. So tell, tell us about your favorite omelet recipe. That's so funny. It reminds me of um, like the way that I would pronounce it when I was three and trying to learn that word. One of my favorite things to do is to make omelets with fresh herbs and creamy cheeses, um, either a chevre, so a, a fresh goat cheese or a brie, something that doesn't really melt necessarily, but the texture goes really nicely with the eggs. And then you can use fresh chives, dill, mint, basil, even scallions. This is a really good... Um, thing to do with herbs that you're growing at home in your windowsill herb garden, um, especially now when a lot of them are in season. So those are all delicious omelet additions. Oh, that sounds great. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so we're done with our, that's the end of our French words about cooking. Um, I encourage you all to go check out Kara um, herself on The Clever Cookster. Uh, you can find her at quickanddirtytips.com. That's where the articles are. And you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or Stitcher or your other favorite podcatcher or podcasting app. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about these French words and, and great recipes. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. You're welcome. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. 
Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as the Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart? every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. And now on to the guillotine. When I was at the Tower of London, which I described in last week's show, we took the Beefeater tour, and our guide spent a lot of time talking about all the beheadings that took place on and near the grounds, and describing them in gruesome detail. Beheadings, it turns out, were not very efficient in the high Middle Ages, and our tour guide said that often rich prisoners would pay the executioner beforehand in the hope of getting a clean blow. So, thinking about beheadings, I remembered that the guillotine was actually named after a French physician, Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotin. Guillotine has an E on the end, his name does not, but that's where we get the word guillotine, from his name. He didn't actually invent the device for lopping off heads. It had been in use around the world since the Middle Ages. But he did lobby for it to be the execution method of choice in the late 1700s during the French Revolution. Guillotin was opposed to the death penalty, but at the time the nobility were being beheaded with swords or axes, which was gruesome and sometimes slow, and the peasants were being hung. Guillotin thought that if people were going to be executed, everyone should be executed the same way, and that it should be more humane. So he proposed that executions should be done with, quote, a machine that beheads painlessly, unquote. And a couple of years later, the guillotine was in use, and his name had been permanently attached to the device. Here's a great quotation from Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables, who lived slightly after the French Revolution. He said, quote, There are unfortunate men. Columbus could not attach his name to his discovery, and Guillotine could not detach his from his invention, unquote. Although he didn't invent it, he just recommended that it be used. 
In fact, the Guillotin family was not happy to be associated with this mechanism of death and petitioned the government to change the name of the device. When the government refused, the family changed its name. I couldn't find a source that included their new name, and that's probably how they wanted it. But if you know, please leave a comment. I'm curious. And I'm also Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me and The Clever Cookster at quickanddirtytips.com, and you can subscribe to both our podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, and likely any other podcasting app you could find. And we always appreciate your reviews. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.